Okay, Acts chapter 6. This morning we're going to be looking at the first martyr of the New Testament church, a man named Stephen. Uh, We were introduced to Stephen earlier in chapter 6 where the apostles pointed seven men to help them out, uh, heading up what was called the daily distribution, where they would take care of widows and and some other uh, people that needed daily help. And um, Stephen was a pretty fascinating man. If you listen to how um, he's described in in verse 7 of chapter 6, it says he was a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. And I would love to be described that way by people, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit. And then verse 8 adds even more, that he was full of grace and power and that he was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Now, this account, if you're familiar with it, is really long. And uh, we debated about how we wanted to tackle this, but whenever possible, uh, depending on who's up here, we like to capture the whole narrative so that you can get kind of a big picture of it. Uh, So we're going to cover a lot of ground today. Uh, Next week, we'll be back to like two or three verses because David's up. So he'll just give you, you know, that. But we're going to move through a a large chunk today. And because we're going to do it that way, um, we're not going to focus a lot on the middle section of chapter 7, which is um, verses 2 through 50. Uh, these are very important verses. We're going to touch on them a little bit, but we would encourage you to go and read those later so that you can get kind of a, an idea of Stephen's sermon that he, that he preaches to these guys. They basically cover what amounts to a history lesson, uh, not that they needed one. They were very familiar with the history, but Stephen goes at it in a way that gets their attention and creates a bit of a result, which we'll look at in a minute. But we'll start out reading um, what got everybody so upset here in in chapter 6, starting in verse 8. Verse 8 says that, And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians, and of the Alexandrians, and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. Um, this synagogue of the freedman, just so you understand, was believed to be a, gr- a group of Greek-speaking Jews or Hellenistic Jews who were probably once part of the what they called the dispersion, and then they had come back to Jerusalem. But because they were Greek-speaking, if you remember back earlier in chapter 6, there was this dispute between the Greek-speaking Jews and the Aramaic-speaking Jews, and they kind of separated from each other. So these guys weren't part of the temple because that's where the bona fide Jews hung out. They hung out at the synagogues where they were more welcomed and and they could, you know. So the interesting thing is Stephen was probably part of one of these synagogues, part of this group. He was a Greek-speaking Jew himself. And another guy was probably part of this same group, a very young man named Saul, who would one day become the Apostle Paul, who's going to show up in this account as well. Uh, Cilicia is mentioned there, which was Paul's hometown. So they they decide uh, to get into this debate with Stephen, who was probably one of them and who was now calling himself a Christian. In verse 10, we read that they disputed with him, but they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. It's kind of cool to think about this, really. I don't know if you've ever been involved in where you're the Lone Ranger in a group of people who see things differently than you, and you've got to try to talk to them about something that's super intimidating. It's pretty terrifying, quite frankly. And these guys, you know, they were well-versed in these these things, and and they come at Stephen, and they, they just couldn't withstand the wisdom that he had. Apparently, um, this old tactic that was alive and well today was, was still alive and well back then. When you can't match wits with your adversary, uh, the next step is just to discredit them, right? Create a, start a smear campaign to make them look really bad and discredit them. And that's exactly what they did. In verse 11, it says, They secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God, which coincidentally, you can only speak blasphemous words against one of those two 
I don't think you can speak blasphemy against Moses, but that's what they said. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him. They brought him before the council, and they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. That's cool. So these guys level a few charges against Stephen. They say that he spoke blasphemy against Moses and God, and that he doesn't stop saying bad things about the temple and about the law. Now, interestingly, what they allege has some truth to it. Usually, if you're going to do a good smear campaign, you need to mix in a little truth so that it's believable, and that's what they do here. Um, If you ever had siblings, you probably became very astute at this yourself. I became very good at when I would, you know, get into a situation, my brothers and sisters, I had a way of making them out to look like just really hardened criminals where I was the innocent victim in the way that I, the way that you'd laid this out was always that way. So you looked one way and they looked another way. Some of you guys are not in your heads. You had siblings. This is what they're doing. So, and and then based on what we know about Stephen, we're pretty sure there's no question that Stephen was preaching the gospel to these guys. He was telling them about Jesus. The gospel teaches that the law, which is represented by Moses, and the sacrificial system, which is represented by the temple, were both fulfilled in Jesus, and and that they, they weren't necessary for salvation. Only Jesus could save. He is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by him. This is what Stephen would have been teaching. So you can see how they would have come come to the conclusions they, they came to. Jesus fulfilled the law for us so that we're no longer under its condemnation. But he also did away with the sacrificial system because of a sacrifice on the cross. That was sufficient to pay for the sins of all people in all times. So the law and the temple aren't the answer. Jesus is the answer. And that's what Stephen's telling these guys. And that's what get, what's getting them so upset. So in verse 1 of chapter 7, after presenting their case against Stephen to the Sanhedrin, we read this in Acts 7.1. And the high priest said, are these things so? So they asked Stephen, are you really doing this stuff? And rather than answer with a simple yes or no, Stephen uses the next 50 verses to tell them exactly what he believes. You want to know what I believe and teach about God and Moses and the temple? Well, here you go. And he's off and running. He breaks into kind of an impromptu history lesson. And you'll never guess who he finds a way to continually point to throughout his sermon. Jesus. Yeah, that's the answer there. He keeps going, pointing them towards Jesus. I got sticking pages. All right. Um, Of course, the way he goes about this is subtle. He doesn't, he doesn't dive right into it. He's smarter than that. Um, but he adds just little things throughout it to make his point. So like in verse 25 of chapter 7, he's talking about Moses, but listen to what he says. He says, speaking of Moses, he supposed that his brothers would understand that God was using him to rescue them, but they didn't understand. Well, who else does that sound like? Jesus, right? In verse 35, you read this. This same Moses, whom they rejected by saying, who made you ruler and judge, was the man whom God had sent to be both their ruler and deliverer. Again, clearly also applies to Jesus. In verse 37, this one's clearly about Jesus. He says, it was Moses who told the Israelites, God will raise up a prophet for you from among your own brothers, just as he did me. And then in Deuteronomy, it says, listen to that prophet. So again, very clear. He's, he's just setting the stage little by little. And things are going pretty good 
It's a good sermon. These guys are like, I like this guy. This isn't that bad. He's not as bad as they were saying up until about verse 51. And then they're like, we hate this guy and his preaching. This is where he takes aim at them in verse 51. He says this, you stiff necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did. So do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now, that's not usually popular when you're preaching a sermon to just start going. This is like, this is what's called, you know, he's not pulling punches here. He's just letting him have it. Stiff necked is, a, I love this picture of, you know, I don't know if you've ever known a stiff neck person, but it's this unwilling to bow, to bow the head, you know, just, oh no, I will not kind of thing. Stubborn, pig headed. Then he calls them uncircumcised in heart and ears, which means that they were just not willing to hear from God. Not at all. In just a minute, they're actually going to cover their ears like children and make noise so that they can't hear what's being said. They don't want to hear the truth of what's being said. Now, the point of Stephen's sermon was to point out that he wasn't the one blaspheming against the law in the temple. They were because Jesus had now come and changed everything. They were the ones guilty of it. It's just like Jesus when they used to put Jesus on trial. You know, he was being accused and he would be on trial and he would turn it around to where all of a sudden they were the ones being accused and on trial. And Stephen does the exact same thing here. He turns it around. Now they're they're the ones that are having to give a defense. In verse 53, he kind of puts the nail in the proverbial coffin by pointing out how, you know, you revere the law. You talk about how this law is so great as though it was delivered by angels, but you won't do what it says. You won't keep it. You know, how can you revere something so much and then completely ignore it, which I couldn't help but think of Christians and their Bibles when I read this, because I think about so many Christians who say, I love the word. I love the word of God. But do you do what it says or do you just treat it as though it came from, you know, this is God's word. It came straight from him. But, you know, yeah, that's something I see a lot. (laughs) Don't be guilty of what Stephen's accusing the Pharisees of here, I guess. That was just a side conviction. It had nothing to do with the sermon. So you're welcome. These guys were even willing to commit murder. They believed the law, and yet they were totally willing to murder innocent people, which is pretty much against the law. Verse 54 says this. Now, when the crowd, when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened. And the son of man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. They cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. This is the account of Stephen, the first martyr of the New Testament church. In this account, we get to see what it looks like to follow Jesus. And I mean, truly follow Jesus. Christianity is an invitation to take up your cross and die to self. Now, that may not sound very appealing when you hear that. You know, you don't hear a lot of churches teaching that to, to draw people in. But come and die is the message of Christianity. But it's come and die so that you can come and live. That's the point. We die to self 
so that we can enjoy abundant life and freedom and peace and forgiveness of sins and a loving relationship with God and a home with him for eternity. That's the gain. Come and die so that you can come and live. Stephen gladly traded his life for life with God. And we can read this account and we can be blown away by Stephen. I read this and I'm so inspired by Stephen. I look at his boldness and his faith and his courage and his, you know, his just determined will to, to follow Christ. And I'm thinking, wow, look at Stephen. I wish I was like Stephen. Oh, to be like him, right? This is a man who was willing to die for what he believed in. It's remarkable. And it's easy to set him aside as a super Christian. I do that when I read accounts like this. It's like, well, he was extraordinary. He was a cut above the rest. You know, who can be like him? He's not a regular run-of-the-mill Christian like you and I. Look at what the text says about him. I mean, you can just build a case for this. He was a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit. He was full of grace and power. He had great signs and wonders. His face even looked like an angel when he spoke. It's like, that's pretty... I've, I've been told I look like a lot of things over the years. Not once an angel. So... Even the Roman Catholics refer to him as Saint Stephen. But what if Stephen was just a regular guy like you and I? What if what we were actually seeing in Stephen was Christ himself? What if that's the answer for what we see in Stephen? Christ in you. Did you notice that much of what is said here, I told you it's going to be one of these days, as I was just prepared for this, I'm just crying. I come out, Joy's like, what's wrong? I'm like, nothing. <laughs> going to get worse probably too, but that's all right. Did you notice how much of what it says about Stephen and, and much of what happens in this passage looks almost exactly like what happened to Jesus? It looks just like what Jesus said and did at the end of his life. It's not a coincidence this parallel, parallel is there so that we would understand something. That there, there's a connection between Jesus and his follower. That when Christ is in us, our lives will look like his life. Each and every Christian can be a Stephen. Should be a Stephen. Because the risen Christ is alive and living in his people through the person of the Holy Spirit. I really like the thought of this. The more I thought about it, it's like, I want this. I want to be more like this. I want to be described as a person that's sold out for Christ, that will follow him even to death. That comes with a price, though, doesn't it? That's the part we, we'd rather do without. But you and I can be filled with faith. We can be filled with grace and power, and we can live a life that is unmistakably Christ-like. As followers of Jesus, people should see Christ in us, right? Maybe even at times they should see something that looks like a face of an angel when they see us because they're seeing the reflection of Christ. Kind of like Moses. Remember when Moses hung out in the presence of God and he came down and his face shone? It's kind of neat to think about. And when we spend time with our Lord, is that unreasonable to think? Psalm 34.5 says, Those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. Oh, that people would, would see Christ and his people as they walk through this world. I'm going to do something now. Okay, we're back. Nobody on the recording knows what just happened. I want to spend a little time looking at ways that we see Christ and Stephen in this passage and then consider how that can and should be true for us as well. 
So here are the, here are the things that I that I saw in this passage, and there's there's many more, and we'll kind of touch on some of these, but but these are the ones I'm going to touch on. Christ and Stephen both fearlessly proclaimed truth with all power and wisdom. They both suffered and they were both persecuted for what they believed and taught. They had grace towards their enemies and they were both welcomed into heaven when they died. So the first thing we're going to consider is that a, a follower of Christ can fearlessly proclaim truth with all power and wisdom. Stephen wasn't a trained theologian or a seminarian, um, but you wouldn't know it based on the sermon he gives. It says that they couldn't withstand this guy's wisdom. They couldn't, they couldn't stand up to him and, and argue. They couldn't go toe-to-toe with him. How was he able to speak with such confidence and wis- you know, with, with confidence and wisdom like this on the spot with no time to prepare? I, I believe the answer is because the fuel of God's Word was present in Stephen's heart and the Holy Spirit was there, was there to set it ablaze when the time was right. <laughs> I just love the thought of that. The Bible tells us to hide God's word in our heart and a time will come where that can just go, go forth in power. Jesus told them that this would happen in Luke 21. In verse 12, he says, but before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, deliver you to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my namesake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness Settle it, therefore, in your minds, not to mediate beforehand on how to answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom, which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. Like, <laughs> praise God. That's a good promise right there for us. When the time comes, we can be confident. God's word is likened to a sword. It's a weapon that you can use against your adversaries, against the lies of the world. But you have to carry your weapon. <laughs> You gotta, you gotta have this thing with you. You gotta have it ready to go. A Christian trying to make it through this world without a sword is like a soldier trying to make it through the war without a weapon. It's, it's, it's stupid. It's crazy to think about a soldier just running out into the battlefield with nothing in his hand. You gotta have a weapon. We have more weapons right here and now in our society in this country that we live in than probably any other country has ever had before. I mean, we have Bibles just stacked in our houses collecting dust, different versions, different types, different, you know, study Bibles, this kind of Bible, and they just pile up. We've got, like, we've amassed weapons. It's like we have an armory. <laughs> but what are we doing with them? Are we ever taking them out? We just look at them and kind of, you know, admire them and put them back on the shelf? Are we using this thing? Are we reading it, studying it, memorizing it, hiding it in our heart, making it ready so that when the day of battle comes, the Holy Spirit has access to it to blow our minds with what comes out? I can't tell you how it happens at times, but there are times when I'll get into discussions with people and they are, they, they outwit me. I'm not a smart guy. I feel like Forrest Gump sometimes. I'm not a very smart man. But all of a sudden, truth starts spilling out of my mouth. Power. Words that I didn't, I didn't plan on start coming out. And I'm going toe to toe with these people. And, and I know what it is. It's not Brent. It's the Spirit of God. It's His Word coming out of me in power. We are so spoiled with so many ways to get God's Word into our lives. Take advantage of it. If you don't know how to get God's word in your life on a daily basis, talk to us. We'll find, there are podcasts, there are books, there are sermons you can listen to online. There are so many ways in our country and in our day and age to get God's word into your life and get into your mind. We have, we put together like a recommended reading list and a recommended resource list. If anybody wants that, it's kind of a, it's ongoing and, and, but it'll give you some tools to, to look to that are, um, that are good. I mean, you know, that trustworthy, I guess is the word I'm looking for. 
so if you have any questions about that, see one of us and we can get that to you guys. But as a follower of Christ, we can fearlessly proclaim truth with all power and wisdom. The next thing a follower of Christ will do is suffer and be persecuted like Christ was. This one's not a popular one to talk about in church today, right? I know we, we hammer away at this um, probably more than some of you want to hear, but I would just love to hear how the prosperity gospels deal with Stephen and his life. I would love to see what they say about him. Because look at Stephen. This is a guy that had his walk together. I mean, can you look at his, his Christian life and say, well, of course, he's going to you know, suffer and be persecuted. Look at the way he lives. No, you can't do that. He was stellar, right? He was just appointed to a leadership position in the church. He was doing amazing signs and wonders among the people and leading people to Christ. So how does a man who is so obviously walking with the Lord end up being cut off, being killed so quickly in the new church? It was actually because he was so closely aligned with Jesus. See, that's the that's what the prosperity gospel misses completely. Jesus said, the more you align with me, the more the world's going to hate you. The more chance you have of suffering and being persecuted. Now, we can look at this and humanly speaking, see it as a tragedy. But is that what this was from God's perspective and from Stephen's perspective? The reality was he was the first one to be rewarded. You think of it that way? He got to go home. <laughs> it's like Stephen won. He won the lottery. He got to go be with his Lord. That's what we're looking forward to ultimately is going home, right? And I love the way this section ends by saying that he, he fell asleep. It's just beautiful to think of for a Christian dying. I like sleeping a lot. I really like sleeping. There's times when you get into bed and it's like it's like a different level of, of, of getting to bed. Everything's just right. The pillow's right. The blankets are right everything's good. And you just like, and you look at your clock and you're thinking, Oh, I probably have 10 more minutes of sleep. Not three hours, man. It's like that, that moment of like, and then he went to sleep. It's like, yeah, I probably think about sleep too much food too, but, <laughs> but Stephen fell asleep. You just get this sense of peace. It's okay. Not only did Stephen benefit, but how did this impact the church? Did they hear about the persecution and pack it up and go home? And say, well, the jig is up. I guess we're done. Let's go. Let's 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 take off. Let's let's keep our Christianity a secret. We better keep this on the DL because if we don't, that's going to happen to us too. That's not what happened at all. They actually became emboldened to preach more. They followed Christ more loudly than they did before. They proclaimed him everywhere they went. They bound together even tighter. This solidified the church. You remember back in chapter five? Um, I want to say it like David said it. Gamaliel, because so, I always say Gamaliel, but I want to be, be united front here. It's like parents. Gamaliel said these words back in chapter 5. If this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. And that's exactly what we see happening here. This plan is going to move forward full steam ahead, and they can't stop it. So as a follower of Christ, we will suffer and we will be persecuted like Christ was. The next one we see is if we're a follower of Christ, we will have grace for our enemies, just like Christ did. Stephen's last words are very similar to Jesus's last words. I don't know if you noticed that. He said, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Now, I'm not sure what would have come to mind at that moment. 
when, if this were happening to me, but I don't think those would be the words that I would have said. I think it would have been like, Lord, avenge me. Bring the pain. Right? Smite them, Lord, in thy mercy. Earlier, we're told that Stephen was full of grace, which was a result of Christ in him. That's how we get full of grace. His grace fills into us, and our grace pours out to the people around us. Even people that hate us. Even people that are in the very act of doing what they were doing to Stephen, he had grace for. Are you full of grace towards sinners? Towards sinners that don't believe the way that you do? Who maybe sin differently than you do? Who vote differently than you do? Look differently than you do? Do you have grace for them as well? As recipients of grace whose sins have been forgiven, shouldn't we be the first to offer grace to sinners around us? Our hope should be that we would see everyone come to Christ, even those who we think of as our enemies. In Matthew 5.44, Jesus said, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. I love that there was a young man in the crowd that day named Saul who would later become the Apostle Paul. He would write in Acts twenty two twenty. Paul says this, And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. That was Paul that day. And Stephen prayed a prayer before he died. Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And that prayer benefited Saul. He had grace for his enemies. The next one that we see is that just as Jesus was welcomed into heaven by his father, we will be welcomed like Christ was if we're one of his followers. Stephen's last words were, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. There's again a clear parallel with Jesus' words. In Luke 23, Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Because Jesus went before us in his death and in his burial and his resurrection, we can have that full assurance that, that we will, he, he's paved the way for us. He stands at the Father and he waits for us to, to do the same. He will receive us in the same way that he was received as a son. In verse 55 again, it says, Stephen says, but, but he, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. I love that when Stephen looked up into the heavens, He sees Jesus, he refers to him as the Son of Man, standing there ready to receive him. And the way this is worded gets me every time, so I'll be ready. When Jesus finished his work on the cross, according to Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3, it says this, After making purification for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He sat down because his work was finished. He is seated at the right hand of the Father. And yet when Stephen looks up into the heavens, where's what's Jesus doing? He's standing. He's standing. He's standing. Not, not because his work wasn't finished. It was. But he's standing because he loves his servant. He's standing because he sees what he's going through. You see our intercessor in our heart, the heart of our Lord. He stands up for this. This matters to him. And I love that. There are so many Christians today that suffer and are persecuted and are dying because of their faith. And that matters to our Lord. He stands and he waits for us. Okay. 
If I could sum this up in one Bible verse, I think of the very words of a young or, or, or an older Saul. It used to be a young Saul, the, the guy that was standing there that day, who wrote these very fitting words that describe Stephen's life. Stephen's life, and I think it's just very interesting that here we have Saul later on becoming a Christian and saying these words in Philippians one twenty one: "For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain." Paul came to that conclusion later in life. And Stephen clearly came to that conclusion right then and there. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Or as what we said, we sang this morning, hallelujah, all I have is Christ. Hallelujah, Jesus is my life. Death is not the end for a Christian. It's a glorious beginning. Um, this is the part that I knew I was going to have a hard time with, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk about this um, this wonderful story of a song that we sing. And it's a graphic story. I'll warn you of that. So I'm not, I'm not doing this for shock value, but Stephen's a pretty graphic story as well. About 150 years ago, there was a great revival in Wales. And as a result of this, many missionaries ended up going to uh, Northeast India to spread the gospel. The region known as Assam was comprised of hundreds of tribes who were primitive and, and very savage. Into these hostile and aggressive communities came a group of missionaries from the American Baptist missions, spreading the message of love, peace, and hope in Jesus Christ. Naturally, they were not welcomed. One missionary succeeded in converting a man, his wife, and his two children. This man's faith proved contagious, and many villagers began to accept Christianity. But this really angered the chief of the village. He summoned all of the villagers and he called the, the family who had first been converted to renounce their faith in public or to face execution. Moved by the Holy Spirit, the man instantly composed a song on the spot, which became famous down the years. He sang this. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. I get emotional because of what happens following this. First, it was his two children who went to meet Jesus that day. And they asked him again, will you now deny your faith? And he said, though no one joins me, still I will follow. Though no one joins me, still I will follow. Though no one joins me, still I will follow. No turning back. No turning back. Next, it was his, his wife. The cross before me, the world behind me. The cross before me, the world behind me. The cross before me, the world behind me. No turning back. No turning back. The commitment this man had for his Lord is inspiring, but it is Christ in him. All he had was Christ. He had nothing else. That's all that mattered to him. And he wouldn't compromise that because to compromise that would mean to compromise everything. I hope that those of you who are Christians here will just understand the value of Christ in us what that means. And for those of you who don't know Christ, that today you might just submit fully to him as your Lord and Savior. Give your life wholly to him. I love this story because something happened that day to the village chief. 
he saw this man's faith and he said, why would somebody lose his entire family and his own life for a man that lived 2,000 years ago in a faraway land? In a spontaneous confession of faith, he declared, I too belong to Jesus. The chief came to Christ and the whole village came to Christ because of what happened that day. Amazing. I told you I was going to go for it. I'm sorry I get so emotional. The gospel wrecks me. It wrecked me the day I got saved and it wrecks me today. Hallelujah. All I have is Christ. Hallelujah. Jesus is my life. Father, thank you so much for the account of Stephen. Thank you for the way that you have spared nothing for our salvation. It came at such a great cost to you. It wasn't free to you, but it comes freely to us by an act of faith. We can trust that Jesus Christ is the son of God who went to the cross on our behalf, who suffered and died in our place, who was buried and who rose again on the third day so that we could have life. Lord, I pray that everyone in this room would fully place their trust in that and that they would know you, that they would come and die so that they could come and live. Thank you for the life you've given us in Christ. Thank you that it is sure and that it is eternal and that we have this hope within us. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.